1: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Luke. Jesus' fame grew all around Israel, many people being a fan of his work, but not willing to give up their pride and accept his salvation. Jesus shared that he would suffer many things and be rejected by the chief priests and elders of Israel. He continued doing many signs and wonders. We join Pastor Will in Luke chapter 9, verse 42.
0: Verse 42, and as he was yet a coming, the phrase there is a very quaint phrase in the Greek. It means everything's looking fine. The boy's just walking up. As he's walking up, all of a sudden, the devil threw him down and tear him. The word there for tear, it's a different word. It actually is a word used. Uh, the Greeks, they, they had their Olympic games and things like that. And boxing was part of their Olympic games. You think boxing is violent in our culture or, you know, or MMA or whatever, man. You need to go study what they would do. They would load the gloves down with, like, pieces of nail and and iron and things like that. I mean, a lot of the guys, they could barely lift their hands up to, to throw the punches. And so when you see the statues they would make, all of the boxers, they always have scars and bruises all over them because of the fact that it was a brutal sport. So the word that's used here for terror is the word that was used when a boxer would give the knockout blow. It would usually be to the death. And so the idea is it would leave the opponent convulsing on the ground. And so this is what the demon did to him. He's kind of the just, just walking up and boom, the demon gives him a knockout blow, leaving him convulsing on the ground, having one of these epileptic seizures. I mean, that'd be a powerful thing if I were. That would unnerve me a little bit. I mean, this is a serious issue going on here and a powerful display by this demon. But what I love here is that Jesus deals with the demon the same way he dealt with the wind and the waves. It just says, and Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit. It's really simple. I see people go through all these elaborate measures to cast out demons and stuff. And I'm like, I don't ever see that in scripture. Jesus just said, you got to go, man. You don't, you're not, you're, I don't approve of what you're doing, so you need to go. That's what the word rebuke means. It means when you speak up because you don't approve of what's going on. And so Jesus, he speaks up and he goes, I'm not down with this. And the demon left him. It was it. It was over. He dealt with the demon the same way he dealt with the wind and the waves. They weren't behaving with his approval, so with a word, he stopped it. What a stark contrast with the disciples who couldn't help this family at all. Isn't it crazy? Jesus just speaks, and it's simply over. And not only that, but notice here it says, and he healed the child. Some people say, oh, so he healed him from the muscle soreness and the bruises from the epileptic seizure. No, 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 no. The word here actually means to cause someone to achieve health when they've been sick. So not only does Jesus cast the demon out, but he heals the boy's epilepsy so that he is whole. And he returns the child to his father in that condition, perfectly whole. Listen, that's a far more powerful display than the demon gave. The demon thought he was going to give his, his stuff out there and strut his stuff. And the Lord's like, "Um, you're done. And he was. And he returned the child, not just demon free, but healed back to his father. That is the power of our savior. You know, I don't know what you might be facing right now. You know, a situation you might be in. Maybe it's an illness or maybe it's a fi- financial situation. Maybe there are those the words of the doctor or the words of the collection company or the words of your boss or whatever. They may sound pretty powerful and they may have you in a place where you're unnerved, but Jesus, with a word, he can make it all better. He just has to speak the word and he can fix it all. He is very powerful. We would normally just go right to verse 43, but before we move on to the actual lesson from the experience. We've learned a lot, but that's not the actual point that Luke's trying to make. I want to point out, though, that Jesus didn't dismiss this special request for special attention. You know, he invited the father to bring his boy close, even though maybe he didn't ask the perfect way. The reason he did is because Jesus is near to the brokenhearted. He is near to those who are brokenhearted. In Psalm thirty-four eighteen which is the verse that says that the Lord is near to those who are brokenhearted, and he is, yes, yeah, save such as be of a contrite spirit. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and save such that be of a contrite spirit. You know, David, he wrote that in an interesting time in his life. He wrote that right after his experience where he was before the king of the Philistines. David was on the run from Saul, and I mean, his friends, you know, weren't with him. He was, he was basically all alone, abandoned, and he doesn't know where to go to get away from Saul, and so he flees to the land of the Philistines goes to the land of his enemies. I mean, not a smart decision. And so he ends up turning himself in. He gets captured. He gets brought before the king. And like, hey, this is David. I mean, this is the guy that they sing songs about in Israel that Saul has killed his thousands, but this guy's killed 10,000 of our people. They boast about that. And David's thinking, oh man, I made a a boo-boo. I should not have come here. I should have trusted the Lord, stayed in the land. And so David begins to pretend like he's crazy. He starts drooling. He starts clawing at the walls and stuff. And, and so the king goes, he's a madman. No wonder Saul's trying to kill him. Let him go. We don't kill people who are crazy. And so David gets out of it and he comes to the Lord and he goes, God, what was I thinking? And yet he says the Lord got him through it because he was brokenhearted. David didn't know where to go. Yeah, this father doesn't approach it exactly right. You don't demand things of God, but he's broken hearted. He doesn't know what else to say. He doesn't know what else to do. And the Bible says the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. So Jesus doesn't say, you didn't ask the right way. The Bible says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I don't get commanded by anybody. He saw the broken heart, and his heart went out to him, and he drew near to him. He said, bring your son near. He drew near to him. And if you're brokenhearted right now, know that the Lord is near to you. In Psalm 147, verses two and three, it says, the Lord does build up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. He heals the broken in heart and he binds up their wounds. In Psalm 23, four, it says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you're with me. Lord doesn't leave us alone. He draws near to us in those times of fear, those times of heartbreak, those times of sadness. You know, Jesus said, he who comes to me, I will know why cast out. So he said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Come near, I'll come near to you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. He says, come near, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest for your souls. And take my yoke upon you, yoke in with me. I'll carry the load, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, if you're going through it right now, the Lord is near to you and he loves you. After such a powerful display, the crowd is wowed. I mean, and thus we actually come to the lesson, the reason Luke includes this in his gospel. In verse 43 of Luke 9, it says, and they were all amazed, that includes the disciples, at the mighty power of God. So the word there means to be so amazed that you're overwhelmed. It means to be Dumbfounded. Why were they dumbfounded? Well, it's the mighty power of God that shined through Jesus. The word "their mighty power, means the majesty, the grandeur. Uh, the only other time this word is used in the Bible is in 2 Peter 1 16. And if that sounds familiar, it's because we covered it last week, and it's what Peter described the transfiguration as, as Christ's deity shining through his humanity. So here we see again in this powerful display where the devil gives his best shot and Jesus just goes, no, nah, you're Done. The grandeur, the majesty of God shines through his humanity. And so they're dumbfounded. No man could do this. No man is like this. See, Jesus, in this powerful display, he allowed a large part of his deity to shine through and it left the people stunned. And they start to actually rethink their critique of Jesus. Maybe he is the Messiah. Maybe we jump ship too soon. The disciples, they can see the excitement and they're stunned too. And they're thinking, yeah, 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 this is good. This is good news. People are on board again. But it's into that moment where the tide seems to be turning back toward Jesus that he turns to his disciples and says what he says in verse 44, and Luke makes his point. The end of verse 33. But while they wondered, everyone, at all things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, he turned to them and said, let these sayings sink down into your ears. For the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. He says, guys, I know you're seeing one thing, but you need to let what I taught you sink down into your ears. And that's a Hebrew idiom. And it means you must not forget my words. What words? The words he told them at Caesarea Philippi, up here in verses 22 through 26, where he said the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be slain and be raised a third day. You must not forget those words. So if you want to be my disciple, you, want to, you need to deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Do not forget those words. For the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. It is inevitable is what that word sh- phrase shall be means. It must happen. This is my mission. This is my plan. Now again, the only reason Jesus would turn to them in that moment and say that is if they're disbelieving him, is if they're doubting his words oh, look at everybody. Jesus can't be right. You know, everybody's in awe of him again. Surely this doesn't end in an arrest and a cross. It can't go down that way. I mean, things are starting to look good again. And ultimately, that's why Jesus uttered his heartbroken words in verse 41. Oh, faithless and perverse generation. He loves us so much. Many choose to believe their own ideas instead of trusting what he says. Despite his repetition, despite his clarification over and over again throughout his word, we think, well, that can't be it, or that can't be right, and we go our own way. No different than the disciples. It's because look at verse 45. For it says, But they understood not this saying, and it was hid from them that they perceived it not, and they feared to ask him of that saying. Now, I'm a King James guy, but we have to be gracious towards our Scottish Presbyterian translators. They were Reformed, and they wrote some things, translated some things some ways that definitely made things look very Reformed. They did not translate some things correctly, and this verse is one of those examples. There's a few of those things in in the King James. This is a, a bad translation here. This is not saying that God hid it from their eyes and they couldn't understand Jesus. That is not what this is talking about here. The phrase, but they understood not, what that word understood not means is it means to be mistaken because you ignore important information. To be off, to be wrong because you've ignored important information. And they didn't, it wasn't they didn't understand. They ignored what they understood. They ignored it and they were mistaken because they ignored it. And, and what's crazy, it's in the imperfect tense, which means they continued to ignore this information despite Jesus' command to not forget it. He says, let these words sink down into your ears. And they're like, not listening, not listening, not listening, not listening. I'm not, this does not end at a cross, no cross, no cross, no. They ignored it. And so they came up with a mistaken idea of how Jesus' life would go. And as a result, it says, it was hid from them. Again, that's a bad translation. The phrase there, was hid, it means, it's two words, actually. One word means to exist, and the second word means to be something that's been Concealed. So it's not that God actually concealed it from them, but their existence regarding this truth, it was like it was hidden from them, like no one ever told it to them because they did not hold it in their hearts. And when you and I neglect to place importance on the things God says are important, you and I will blunder through life as if he never said them. I see people all the time, and God bless them, but they'll come into my office, and they'll say, Pastor Will, I just don't understand why this happened. I thought God loves me, and I don't even know if he's real. And then you start walking through, and, you go, and then you see there was a clearly violated principle. And you say to him, "Why?" you realize when you did this, you, you kind of ended up in trouble. And so it's not that God doesn't love you. It's that you stepped outside of his boundaries and outside his protection. He was trying to protect you, but you ignored what he said. Yeah, but I, just, I, I don't understand that verse. I don't think it applies to me my situation is different. And you go, well, this is on you, not God, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And so we can't blame God here and say he hid it from them. That is not at all what happened. They ignored important information. They came up with a mistaken view about the Messiah. And as a result, they blundered through life as if Jesus had never said it. And they did not perceive it. They did not understand the real nature of his mission. So it's not that God concealed this truth from them or that God didn't allow them to comprehend it. If that's true, then why did Peter pull Jesus aside and go, you're not going to the cross? If Peter didn't understand what Jesus was talking about, then why did he pull him aside? Jesus said, hey, I'm going to the cross. And Peter said, not so, Lord, it shall not be with you. Peter fully understood. All the disciples understood exactly what Jesus said. It wasn't hidden from them. It wasn't concealed by God from them. They chose to ignore it. And as a result, they existed like it had never been said. And as a result, they didn't understand the real nature of Jesus' mission. They refused to believe it was true, and because they refused to hold it as important, they didn't understand its necessity. And so they missed it. They missed Jesus' mission, just as if God didn't tell them. Now, it says here, and they feared to ask him of that saying. Now, they certainly weren't afraid of Jesus. They actually asked him about this. If you read another gospel, it says as they were coming down the mountain... They, again, they understood, because they said to Jesus, they said, Jesus, you know, why does the scripture say that Elijah has to come first if you're, you know, if you're going to go to the cross, and we don't want to talk about that, but, you know, why, why is Elijah, why didn't he come down with us? And so Jesus had to explain what the scriptures do teach, that Elijah's going to come first. And Elijah has come, if you can receive it, in John the Baptist. And he explains that just as Messiah has two comings, so Elijah would have two comings, in a sense. In the first coming, Messiah would come to die and John the Baptist fulfilled Elijah's ministry in preparing the people for that. When Jesus comes a second time, Elijah himself will come and he'll prepare the people of Israel for their king. Jesus says, the scriptures don't lie. It's just your concept of Messiah is off. And they didn't want to hear that. <laughs> they didn't want to hear it all. And that's why it means they were scared to, to ask him anything because they didn't want to hear about that. Because the idea that that was true, that a cross-weighted Jesus terrified them. What happens to us then? What will happen to our nation? Messiah can't die. How will there be a kingdom if Messiah dies? And so instead of asking him, they ignore his words and they cling to that popular idea of a reigning Messiah. He doesn't, he doesn't know what he's talking about. We know what we're talking about. Now what's sad is if you go back in history and I would encourage you, if you've never read the book called The Search for Messiah by Dr. Mark Eastman, you need to read it. It's an old book but it's a goodie. And in that, he documents the writings of the rabbis in the 3rd and 4th century BC. Clearly, the rabbis taught the people that Messiah would come, he would be God in the flesh, that he would come and he would die for the sins of the world. And then he would come again a second time to rule and reign. Clearly. And he documents, he quotes rabbis over and over again what they taught the people. But see, something happened over time. The Jews, when they got out of Babylon, they went to back home, but they were never governing themselves. The Persians were ruling over them at first. And then when the Greeks conquered the Persians, they ruled over Israel. And then when the Romans conquered the Greeks, they ruled over Israel. And century after century, Israel was under another government, and it just wore on them and wore on them and wore on them. The old rabbis, they would call the suffering Messiah, Messiah ben Joseph, because of all Joseph's sufferings. And then they would call the reigning Messiah, Messiah ben David, the king. Do you ever hear the people of Israel in the New Testament say, oh, son of Joseph, have mercy on me. You never hear him say that. What do they always say? Son of David. That's because around the second, first century BC, the whole teaching of Messiah ben Joseph, rabbis started ignoring it. They didn't want to hear about suffering anymore. They didn't want to tell the people about suffering anymore. They didn't want to suffer anymore. They wanted their enemies to pay and they wanted the Messiah to come and reign. And so they only taught the people about Messiah ben David. The ruling Messiah. So that's the world Jesus stepped into. That's why he's crying out, Oh, disbelieving, untrusting, and misled generation. Your idea of who I am is so off because you've re- rejected an entire half of Scripture. And we're in this mess now because of it. So the disciples, they're clinging to that too. Because that means they don't have to go to a cross either. And that means it's time for the disciples' favored pastime, arguing about who's the greatest. Look at verse 46. And then there arose a reasoning among them. Remember, Jesus has just told them, don't forget what I told you. I'm going to a cross. And there arose a reasoning among them. Which of them should be greatest? Luke is very kind. The word reasoning means an argument or a debate greatest, who, have, who will have the highest status or the most importance. Now, we know from the other gospels that the argument was over which one of them would have the highest status in Christ's kingdom, not just which one was most important, but which one would have the highest status in Christ's kingdom. They often saw them, each other, as rivals, and they were jockeying for the best job in Jesus's kingdom. Remember John and James's mom came and said, oh, master, you can't deny a Jewish mother's request. And Jesus says, what do you want? And she says, let my boys sit, one on your right hand, one on your left, in your kingdom. Oh, man, the rest of the disciples were mad when they they saw that. Says they were angry when she did that. You know why they were angry? Because their mom hadn't done it first. They were always jockeying for that role, that position, sitting right next to him. People who believe, really believe Jesus is going to a cross, they're not having that argument, are they? But they are. So this confirms or verse 45 said, that they ignored him and had a mistaken view of him, just like as if Jesus had never said it, as if it had been hidden from them. Now, when they got back to Capernaum, the other Gospels tell us that Jesus asked them, he goes, hey guys, what were you arguing about on the road? Peter looked at John and goes, were we arguing, John? John said, we weren't arguing, Jesus, you know. James, were we arguing? No, we weren't arguing about anything, you know. But Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, he takes a child and he set the child right next to himself, When they replied with nothing, Jesus knew. And so he decides to use this as an opportunity to teach them about true greatness, about and remind them of his mission. This is Jesus, he realized this, and he took a child, and where does he set him? Right next to him, the place of honor, the position that they all wanted and coveted, the place right next to him. And he says to him, whosoever shall receive, which means to welcome, this child in my name receives me. And then whosoever receives me, receives him that sent me. Here's the lesson. For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. Greeting a child or watching over a child would be considered the lowest job a servant could have. Like, you messed up that day if when people came over, they're like, hey, you're keeping an eye on the kids. They're like, really? Like, what did I do wrong? Well, you burnt the biscuits. I did burn the biscuits. All right, I got the kids today. Because they were considered to be unimportant. No one greeted them when they came in. If You, you were the exceptional, awesome servant if you were happy to see the kids and you greeted them and you treated them like everybody else. No, everybody else was like, I got kid duty, so whatever. And they would just watch them. They wouldn't give him a place of honor. They wouldn't welcome them, treat them nicely, nothing. Greeting a child would be almost an unnecessary part of a servant's job. So here he tells them, if you do that, then you're receiving me, welcoming me. And if you're welcoming me, you're welcoming the big guy. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you need to be the least. The word there means least is the exact opposite of greatest. It means unimportant or lowest in status. I'm sure the disciples Before then, they thought, well, surely Jesus has more important work for me to do than greet kids. I mean, last time the kids came around, what did the disciples do? They tried to make them go away. And Jesus said, Don't you forbid the kids from coming to me. See, this didn't sound like kingdom work to them at all. But isn't that what Jesus did when he helped the boy with epilepsy? Nobody else had a solution for this kid. None of the disciples were crying out to God for him. That's not the situation Jesus walked into. That boy wasn't important enough to anyone but his father and Jesus. Jesus had spent all his time with the disciples to prepare them to preach his message after he would rise from the dead, not to build their own kingdom. And yet here they are, planning, conniving, arguing, jockeying for position. They are missing their real mission, helping that kid with epilepsy, helping that dad, crying out to God, not being satisfied with, well, I guess that's just how it is, and I'm just gonna keep building my kingdom. That's just how the world is, I'm just gonna keep building my kingdom. I don't got time for that kid, but I've got time to argue with John about who the greatest is. I'm gonna keep building my kingdom. Charles Spurgeon said he spoke of his abasement, Jesus did. They thought of their own advancement and that at the same time. I mean, can you see a more opposite (laughs) mindset? Can you see why Jesus said, oh, perverse and unbelieving generation? One here is giving his life away, preparing to give his life away to rescue others. And we have 12 jockeying for a better position than the others around them. So opposite. But you know what? In a short time, all of those aspirations of the disciples are going to be dead. They're going to be locked in a room, fearing for their lives, thinking the Romans are coming for them next. See, they loved Jesus, but they also loved an idea that wasn't Jesus. And only when they let go of that idea and they took up their own cross did they finally start their real mission. Did they finally start reaching out to others? Not building their own kingdom, serving others by giving their lives away. That's our mission. That's our mission, to be the least, to be, do the unimportant things, to serve others by giving our lives away, not build our own kingdoms. So as we close this morning and the worship team comes up, do we get what it means to be a part of Jesus's team, to be a disciple? God loves to do good things for his kids. But can I tell you something? It's not a very American idea. Jesus didn't save you to prosper your business. He didn't save you to give you a nice home. He didn't save you to make you perfectly healthy and he didn't save you to destroy all your problems. He saved you to bring you into a relationship with him and then he invites you and he calls you to join in that mission so others can experience that relationship too. That's the mission. Now, God loves us and he does good things for us and so he blesses us with those things. He he heals us when we're sick and he blesses us with good jobs. He takes care of us. He allows us to enjoy life. But we cannot look at that as the mission and have everything and all of our energy feed into that. We need to be faithful at our jobs. We need to be faithful with our homes and take care of them. We need to take care of our bodies. But ultimately, with the goal always of going, I want to use this for your kingdom and for your glory. I want this to be a way that I can further the kingdom and bring others into the relationship that you've brought me into. So maybe you're here today and you love the Lord, but... But maybe you've been doing some kingdom building of your own. Can I urge you with the same warning that Jesus gave, don't forget Jesus' words. He that is least among you all, the same shall be great. That's where revival starts. When we strive to be least in service to others. Let's pray. Lord, we need that desperately. And we need revival in our own hearts, Lord, because I know if no one else here gets sidetracked, I do. Lord, I get focused on things that are not necessarily... Kingdom building, but rather building my own kingdom. And so, Lord, as I just say to you, Lord, I I confess to you, I don't want to do that anymore. Lord, I know there are others that are probably praying and saying the same thing. Lord, will you help us to be kingdom minded in all the other things that we do? Will you help us to see that we have a great mission to make disciples in all that we do? And Lord, would you fill us with your spirit so we might live that out? Help us never to embrace the wrong idea of you but to embrace the cross, our own suffering, our own service for others. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.